0: Well, I'll turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Yes, there's no Father's Day message. There's a, there's a message of God's salvation by God's grace. It's perfect message for fathers and for Father's Day. Um, we come to one of the most famous passages, maybe in all of the New Testament for Christians. I'd be surprised if um, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, was not f- at least familiar to you, um, if you are a Christian, And more likely than not, it is something that you have memorized or that you have at least read through. It is one of those most foundational statements about what it is that we believe about the good news of Jesus Christ and what he has done. And if you have been here the last few weeks, this has been kind of a journey from the beginning of of Ephesians, speaking of how great and glorious our God is and how he has planned from time Before, Well, let me say it backwards. Before time, right? Before history began, before there was a material universe, God had thought up a plan of salvation for sinners. And he had accomplished that plan in Christ. And looking forward, that plan is meant to bring him glory. Not just, oh, God is great. He is great but the kind of glory that would exalt the fact that he is that kind of a loving, merciful, and gracious God, that he would save fools, rebels, idiots like you and me. So that for all of eternity, God's reputation will always be glorious because of his extensive and unending grace towards us. It'll be his grace that will be glorious. Not his wrath, right? Not his final judgment. Those things are part of who God is. But what will bring him glory in all of eternity is how he has rescued, how he has saved some by grace. That's the topic today. And I will begin by making sure that we are defining our terms clearly. We use the term salvation often, right? And it's appropriate, but salvation, being saved, etc. As Christians, we develop this, this Christian lingo that if we're not careful, we kind of assume that everyone in the room knows what we're talking about. When we say that we are saved, the question is, what are we saved from? And why do we need salvation in the first place? Why we need salvation is because we are sinners deserving of death, right? That's exactly what scripture throughout all of scripture tells us that the penalty of sin is death. We deserve God's divine wrath because God is perfectly just and he would be less than perfectly just if he just kind of lets some of us get away with a few things. Sinners deserve judgment is a statement of justice. Absolute, concrete, um, monolithic and unchangeable. Sinners deserve judgment. That is, that is the problem. And so if sinners deserve judgment, who is a sinner? Well, every single human being born that is a human being is a sinner. They're born sinners by nature. We saw that earlier in Ephesians 2. We are by nature children of wrath. And if that all of that is true, then they need rescue. They need saving. Not saving from themselves. I mean, to a degree, it's saving from themselves, but from the judgment that they well deserve. How will they be saved? How can they be rescued? And Paul's emphasis here in Ephesians chapter 2 is they can be rescued, not in themselves or because of something or because they tried a little harder or because there is something savable in them. None of that is true. All of them in the same soup, dead in their trespasses and sins. How are they saved? Simply by God's divine grace. Because he chooses to save some who don't deserve that salvation. Every Christian that that claims the name of Christ believes in that same gospel. That they're undeserving, and yet here we stand declared righteous before a holy God, not because of anything we deserved or could have done or our potential or any of that nonsense, but only because God loves and his mercy is something that is only found to that perfect extent in our saving God. That's what we mean by salvation, by God's grace. And so as we look at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, it's a simple, I don't think it's anything that is that complicated. Um, I broke it into three, three points, but really, it's two major movements. It's salvation by grace apart from human effort. One and two kind of goes together. And then we are saved that we might walk in his good works. And so those are the two major movements, three, out, three points in our outline that we're looking at. Um, but let me read you this passage, but let me read you from verse 1 of chapter 2. So we take the context of the first seven verses and, and, and borrow that into our thinking about verses 8 through 10 this morning. Chapter 2 of the book of, of Ephesians. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and in mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as we opened the scriptures this morning, even as we sung songs of your love, your grace, your willingness to rescue sinners, Lord, would you help us to see the truth of scripture here? Would you reach into the hearts of those that are struggling? Lord, to understand your grace apart from their works. Would you rescue sinners who have been committed to their sinfulness, who have loved the darkness and hated the light? Would you call them to yourself, not because of anything that they deserve, but quite the opposite, despite what they deserve, because of your infinite grace and love towards sinners? For those that have already named the name of Christ and believe on him for salvation and have made him Lord over all of their existence, would you grant to us, Lord, a measure of your grace to think carefully about how rich our salvation is, that it might motivate us to continue our struggle against sin and darkness of depression and pain that we might recognize how broken this world is, and in our pain, that we might look to you because your grace is always sufficient. May we remember, Lord, every Christian in this room, may we remember that it is not because of how hard we work, how strong we labor, it is not in us, but it's always of God, so that salvation would bring you glory and not us. So we thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Thank you for this time in the word. And we ask that you would open it up to our good, to our benefit. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. If we begin here by uh, looking at the idea of being saved by grace through faith, in the first part of verse 8, it is that exact phrase, right? Um, For by grace you have been saved through faith. So we're talking about being saved by grace alone. And as we do that, this exact phrase, right, this phrase is identical to that phrase in verse 5. If you scan up your eyes a few verses, right, to verse 5, it says, even when we we're dead in our trespasses, we we're made alive, made us alive together with Christ. And then that that. Parenthesis, right? That phrase, by grace you have been saved. When the Greek is the exact same wording, the exact same language, in fact, the same verb tenses. The only thing different, though, is that when we get to this portion in verse 8, it says, for by the grace you have been saved through faith. The the use of the definite article tells you that it is this particular grace. That everything that, that Paul has been talking about up to this point, all of salvation, right? The mercy of God, how his kindness has been bestowed upon us, how we are sinners. We import all of that into this statement, into this phrase. It's a distillation. Maybe it's more of a concentration, a reduction sauce, I don't know, I'm not a, I'm not a chemist, I don't, but I think that you boil things down, right? And you get to something that is the most essential or the richest or the, right? I could be wrong, but I think, right? Like you get down to the nitty gritty of it. And if you got down to, the, to the, the most essential, the most concentrated form of what it means that we are saved from our sins, it is this statement, for by grace... You have been saved. Paul uses this as almost a way to catch everything, to make sure that we understand that this grace, that this particular grace, this grace that has granted salvation, not just the grace of, you know, of ballerinas' movements. Like, we call that gracious, right? Like, oh, they move so graciously. It's like, I, I don't even know what that means, man. They, they, they're kind of smooth. But so is a basketball player. Like, it's, like, it's all grace, right? No, but we're talking about this kind of grace, this grace that is bringing salvation to sinners who don't deserve it. That's what this means, or that's what this phrase is meant to express. This particular gospel grace. So what do we mean when we say the word grace? And as a Christian, you've heard, you know, probably multiple definitions, and that's fine right? Um, It is uh, unmerited favor. I think that's an excellent way to express it. It is uh, the gift of salvation. That is a wonderful way to say it. I mean, it's all of those things. But when scripture talks about what it is that the distillation of all of God's benevolence, his kindness, his mercy, and his love, if we can express it all in a singular word, it's the New Testament term grace, Go back to verse 4 for a second. And remember, we had just talked about what we deserved in verses 1 to 3. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're following the prince of the power of the air, right? We, we lived in the passions of the flesh. We're influenced by the world. We deserve, man, we deserve the wrath of God upon us. We were by nature, like we were sinners already. That's why we sin. We don't sin and become sinners at some point in our lives. By nature, we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, he's just piling on. Paul is saying, what is God like in the midst of all of this darkness around us? Well, he has wealth in mercy. He is not just a loving God. He has great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead, while we were still dead, he made us alive together with Christ. And that's when he says, by grace, you have been saved. He is trying to say grace, that term in that phrase, by grace, you have been saved. It distills all of that. How rich is God's mercy? How great is his love? How hard is it for him to love sinners like you, like me? It is all captured in that singular word, in that extended phrase, for by grace you have been saved. That's what it means that God is a gracious God. It doesn't just mean that you don't deserve it. It certainly means that. But it means that it expresses his love, his kindness in ways that are so infinite that only God can be like this. It's, you know, if someone says to you, uh, you're a very gracious person, Right? That's, that's very kind, and that's a good thought. And I, I hope that, you know, you are known for your graciousness. That would be appropriate because your Heavenly Father is gracious. But you will never be gracious like the Heavenly Father. This grace, the grace of God, right? It can be mimicked by human beings. But it's at an infinite level that is so much beyond anything that we ourselves can do to act. Can, can emulate, except that we are trying to mimic for the sake of glorifying the God who has rescued us. I mean, there are so many aspects of how infinitely and impossibly God has loved us, even in how he demonstrates his own love towards us, his own, this is from Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love towards us. In other words, he's not just demonstrating love in a general sense which is out there in the universe. No, it's his love. It is the grace. It is the love that only a god like him could do and he demonstrates his own love, right, towards us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still rebels, while we we're still cursing the name of Jesus Christ, he sends his son to die for us. You are saved by that kind of grace. And the rest of verse 8 and and verse 9 is going to dig in and emphasize that you had no help in all of this. That you aided none of this. It is important to emphasize that, not because we're trying to protect, oh, this is, you know, just, just God can do this. It is true, just God can do this. But we never... Want to suggest that in any way that we have added, conditioned, or somehow helped God along in the application of His grace towards us. Because what that does is it diminishes God and His love, His grace, His compassion, His mercy. If I've added anything to to have at least a little bit of deserving from God in terms of His grace, it's no longer His grace. Is no longer the grace by which we have been saved. By grace, you have been saved, rescued, right? Taken from darkness to the light, taken from dead in your trespasses and sins, and made alive in Christ. The impossible has taken place and it's empowered by nothing that you added to or conditioned or deserved, but simply because God is that gracious. Now, I'm framing these things, right? Because the second part of this is our response. We are saved through faith alone. And if you notice something, I am framing these things with that, with that sola, with the alone at the end. Our reformers, the great reformers, they talked about the the five solas of the Reformation. Three of them particularly apply to salvation, right? Um, By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. What was difficult for them, and in the Counter-Reformation, right, what um, the Roman Catholic Church declared, anathema, meaning that that you, you are accursed, you deserve to get in the express lane to get to go to hell, right, you are accursed forever, is if you believed in these solas. But this is what I, I want you to understand. Your, your Catholic friends are, are probably not, you know, as informed about, about their theological conviction against, you know, the Reformed, right? The the individuals who hold to the Reformed soteriology or a reformed theology of salvation. Well, what they are against is not, the Catholic Church is not against grace. They speak about grace constantly. They're not against faith. They speak of faith constantly. And they're not against the name Jesus Christ. They speak about Jesus Christ constantly. What, what makes us accursed in their eyes is that we emphasize that we're saved by grace alone. That's what we call it the solos of the Reformation, not the words of the Reformation, grace, right, oh, faith, et cetera. It's the, soul, it's the alones of the Reformation, the grace alone. In other words, you can't condition that. You can't, you can't encourage God towards this. You can't channel his grace towards you. You can't do that. It is his independence, his freedom. It is his godness that he chooses some, and for no reason than because he chooses to love some. He said, well, there's some that, that he loves because they're, they more helpful to the kingdom, right? No. He chose fishermen, right? He chose, like, a tax collector, a political zealot, possibly a terrorist. He chose, like, knuckleheads. Guys that are calling fire, Lord, just bring fire down on that village. They won't, they won't listen to the gospel, right? God chooses whom he chooses because he is God, and he gets to choose he gets to choose. And he chooses to grant grace. And so if, it is, if we're saved by grace alone, it means that we condition, add nothing to it. We, 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 we bring nothing to, to merit or to even guide or to even, even suggest that we're a little savable. And so if some of you are hanging on to clean up your life so that you're a little bit more savable, then you're doing the exact opposite of what Scripture calls you to do. If you find yourself to be, convict, to be convinced and convicted of your own sinfulness then what do you do? Scripture says, confess, repent, turn to the Lord. Seek forgiveness. Not, okay, let me clean myself up. Let me remove a few of these dirty things. And then once you know, I've tidied up the place, then I'll invite the Lord over. You're saved by grace alone. Secondly, we are saved through faith alone. So the first part of that phrase is, for by grace you have been saved. And the second part, right, that phrase is simply through faith, through faith. As one commentator says, if grace is the ground of salvation, then faith is the means by which it is appropriated. It's the means by which it is appropriated. Paul has expressed an amazingly glorious truth in talking about being saved by faith and then by adding through faith, he is in in essence doubling down on any suggestion that there's some <clears throat> human merit or savability in us, right? In other words, what, what does a human do? Well, all he does is respond. Now some might think, well, isn't having faith or expressing faith or putting faith in Christ, isn't that isn't that a work? Isn't that if it is a work, it deserves merit, right? It deserves a reward. And it is a completely wrong understanding of what through faith means. Through faith is simply a response to God's grace. It is a response in the same way that breathing is a response to the air, right? We are given oxygen and a bunch of other stuff. And if you live here in in greater Los Angeles, you get sprinkled a few extra things in there, right? They're just kind of floating around and you're just breathing that stuff in. That's the air, it's essential for living, right? But to say that it is a work for us to respond to air, to receive air, is probably off. And I know the, the analogy is not perfect because there's a sense in which there's motor functions and we got to like breathe, et cetera. But we are built to breathe, right? In fact, I, I, don't, I don't concentrate every morning when I wake up. Oh, thank goodness, I'm still alive. Now let me, let me remember to take, you know, However, 10,000, 20,000 breaths I need to take today, right? One. Okay, that was a good one, right? I'm not concentrating through the day on breathing. What am I doing? I'm just receiving the air that has already been in place by God's common grace for all human beings and all living things that need to breathe. It is not a work for me, and neither does it deserve merit, so that if I go to the doctor's office and he says, hey, now, you need to lose some weight. He goes, oh, that's fine, but hey, you got to give me some credit. I breathe." I've been breathing. Breathing has been going, like air is coming into me, right? He'd go like, okay, that's good, because if you weren't, you'd be dead. Like, come on, what are we talking about? There is no merit in that. There is no work in that. It is a response. We're just sucking it in. And if we're not sucking it, you're dead. Right? This is what we mean by we are saved by grace. It is all of God. And our part is merely the response. It's to acknowledge our absolute dependence on these things. It's to believe, and in believing, then we will then walk in those things. I believe that I will continue to breathe, and I don't even think about it, all right? I have almost a faith in the fact that the air is breathable, and if the air becomes unbreathable, I probably notice it quickly for, I don't know, what is it, like six minutes, and then that's it. I expire, Right? The point is that we walk, we breathe like gravity. I depend upon it. I believe it. I know it theoretically, but I cannot imagine that it is not there. We trust in it. And that's what faith is. It's simply that we trust this grace that we have heard that is offered to us in the person, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as full payment for my sins. We are trusting and what God has done in Christ for us. That's faith. It's, it's a response. It's a receiving. It's not a work. It's not an energy. And in fact, Scripture even talks about the fact that even, even grace is a gift that is given to us. In Philippians 2, it talks about how, how, you know, how God has a gift granted to us, not only to believe, but to suffer. Right? for the name of Christ. Not only to believe, he's granted both belief and the suffering associated with, with, with being related to Jesus Christ, our Lord. Where, where are we going with all of this? Saved by grace through faith, that, that statement simply means that God gets all the credit. He gets all the credit. Not 99.9%. He gets all the credit. The sinner has brought nothing to the table, right, connected with salvation. And sinner, if you are busy trying to collect a few odds and ends that kind of might direct the Lord's grace towards you, stop. Come to the Lord, right? Believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Call upon His, and you will be saved. It is just, the gospel is, is sometimes too simple, Right? And there are many who will push that away because they have found a moral life, a good life, a decent life to be sufficient. But these these can't be sufficient because salvation can only come by the grace of God in Jesus Christ and through faith in all of these alone. We're saved by grace alone. We're saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Alone, Nothing added, no tradition, no, right? no acts of penance, no confessions. No, you, you, don't, you don't package in all these things that you have to do in order to get yourself to that grace. Grace in and of itself is sufficient. And the receiving of it, faith, not works, right? Faith is sufficient, which makes Jesus Christ sufficient, which makes God's glory right, and salvation absolute. We're saved by grace through faith. We're also saved, according to the second part of verse 8 and 9. And I said point 1 and 2 really form one concept. If we're saved by grace through faith, then we are saved apart from any human effort. And that's really what uh, the rest of verse 8 and verse 9 wants to emphasize. The, The scriptures are doubly emphasizing that God, by grace, is our rescue. Through faith, yes, but God and God alone is our rescue. And it's nothing to do with our capacities. God saves, we add nothing. So look at that first part of, or that second part of verse eight. All right, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. It's not our doing, it's God's gift. Uh, w- one of the wonderful ways that, that the apostle in his, his 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 um his writing capacity, his ability, is that he'll form this like his phrases in ways that are so so helpful to emphasize certain things. Greek is more fluid in terms of its like like the word ordering. And so what you have here is literally, and this not from you. If if we if I make a very wooden and kind of inappropriately wooden kind of translation, that phrase, and this is not your own doing, it can be translated, it's not of you. This is not from or out of you. You did not do this, right? So if you think of that first part, and this is not from you, then the second part begins with God, right? Our English says it is a gift of God, but in the Greek, it's God first. So it's thale first. And it would be God's is the gift, So walk this out with me, and you kind of see Paul's emphasis. This is not from you, you contrasted to God. God's is the gift. The the point being, this is not a you thing. This is a God thing. It is his gift. It's a word that means that something is given, and and gift in our English language and probably in every language is defined by the fact that it is given free of charge. Can you, can you imagine, like, you know, and I've been places where, you know, they hand out like free stuff. Some of you guys at UCLA guys, been to Santa Monica, Santa Monica Promenade, you know, the Third Street, that area. And every once in a while, there'll be a truck and they just hand out stuff. And so I happened to be there when, when Snickers ice cream guys were there and they're literally handing out Snickers, like, so good, right? So it's one of those where you walk by and go, oh, thank you. And you come back and you turn your hat around and you go, oh, thank you. You know, you try to, try to be, you're like a different version of them, right? Because you're trying to get an extra one and stuff. And they're cool about it. You think, oh, you know, I recognize you here. Here's another one. Like, so you get, you get, like, these are free. But can you imagine I enjoy those and I say, oh, that is good. And then they chase me down and, or I go home and I get a credit card bill for three bucks. Right? Like, that, that's not a gift. The free in sample means that you don't have to pay for it, right? If they go, hey, it's free. And I go, okay, thank you. And as I eat it, they go, okay, now you got to do 30 jumping jacks. Well, it's like, wait, I thought this was free, right? Like there's something about the idea of gift that we get, that, that there's an emphasis on the idea of it being free, that if you have to do something to earn it, or if you have to pay back something in order to pay it down, right, then it's no longer a gift. So Paul, by using this term gift, is trying to say, he's going over the top and emphasizing the fact that this is not a you, that you didn't do anything to earn anything, to be a little bit more deserving. This is all God's grace, meaning that grace is a gift. It's not about you. It's a God thing. And for us, it's a humbling thing. It's a humbling thing because it, it would be nice for me to feel a little bit like I'm, I'm special. I said on the, on, the, on the absolute sense, every one of us is special because we're image bearers of God. We have the capacity to think, create, and to do things that animals cannot do. We form community. We talk about stuff. We write poems and and music, some of our guys that lead worship, they have skills and instruments. So I can't do that stuff. That's amazing, right? Thankful for all of that. Uh, that, that, is, that is us image bearers, unique and wondrous. But not as far as salvation goes. There is no doing. There is no wondrous. There is no oh, all that, that. One of the most handsome dudes I have ever created. I, I got to save this one, right? There's none of that right? Even though that's true, there's still none of that. (laughs) It is simply his grace, not our doing, not our energy, not our, our, our ESV says not our doing to try to emphasize what we're talking about. But a straight translation is, it's not of yourselves, right? I think the NASB says it's not of yourselves. The whole point being that it's not in the realm of you, it's in the realm of God. Not our doing, but it's God's giving, his gift, right? Secondly, and it's a repeat, right? But with a slightly different emphasis. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. If salvation bears no influence by human initiative or human doing or human deserving or any of that, then there's no room for human merit. And if there's no room for human merit, there's no ground for anyone to boast. There's nothing to boast about. And this is an interesting drift because that first phrase, right, we saw not our doing, but God's gift, right? Not us, but God and his gifting. It's not our working, but, right, so that none can boast. His unconditional uninfluenced, gracious gift of salvation is given to us in such a way that is apart from anything resulting in our work. And so it has nothing to do with our working. We have no basis of boasting. Why, why is Paul saying that? Because throughout the, the New Testament, particularly the Pauline epistles, he is constantly being pushed back on right, from enemies of the gospel of grace. People that are saying, oh, you have to be Jewish again. You have to keep the dietary restrictions. You have to do this. You can't do this. You need to be circumcised. You have to. They are piling on all the things that they consider to be the good works that you need to add to your life so that you might be well-pleasing to God and that you might receive his grace. There is a boasting, Paul calls, a confidence, right, in the doing of religious stuff. Now, that could be you. You come to church regularly. Maybe you feel like, okay, that deserves something. I mean, I I go to church regularly, you know? God, I've been coming since I was in my mama's tummy, you know? I've been saved from birth. Sometimes you hear that, and it's like, listen, nobody is saved from birth, right? I I don't know how to tell you that. Um, Right, but... Like there is a self-trusting, a self-confidence, a boasting that is extremely dangerous to every sinner who finds himself captive to the idea that, well, I'm just trying to do a little bit better because that's what you do. That's that's how you get close to God. That's how you get God's grace. And that kind of self-trusting, that kind of ground of boasting, right, is like works. Is adding to, adding to the things of the Lord everything we just talked about in terms of the Reformation solas, right? It is grace alone. You, you don't add to that. It is through faith alone. You don't you don't do some works to to make it a little bit better, right? It is in Christ alone. It is not Christ and traditions. It is not Christ and, you know, whatever the church says. It is, not, it is not anything that conditions anything. It is all of God apart from human effort. Let me take you to one passage, and you should turn there because it's extensive, but it's in Romans 3, verses 21 through 27, because I, I love this passage. It's talking about justification, the righteousness of God that comes through faith. In chapter 3 of Romans, verse 21, it says this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. He's saying the same stuff that Paul has, we had just read in Ephesians 2. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, all of them, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. See, we just heard that, right? Whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a payment of his wrath by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, right? He shows his righteousness, why? Or his justice, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. But listen to verse 25. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. There's no boasting. There's nothing we're clamoring for, there's nothing we're trying to prove. We're not more spiritual because we did this or we did that. We didn't add anything to any of this. And so there's a, there's a humbling that comes from that in the recognition that we're all sinners, right? And that we all deserve God's wrath, and God has been gracious to the Christian, to the redeemed, not because of anything that they have done. That is not of their efforts whatsoever. So leave the boasting, the conceit, the self-righteousness, the arrogance... Because that's what all of that is. Leave that on the side. Stop playing games. That, That need that you have to try to hide, you know, your brokenness, your sinfulness, and to seem like you're more spiritual than others. That's sin. That's a form of boasting. This desire to criticize, to find faults, to judge, right? To examine others and to tell people why they need to do this so they can be more right. That's sin. That's a form of boasting. This desire to be seen as spiritually mature so that you can be recognized as some great Christian person. That's boasting. It's conceit and absolute error and the opposite of what our conviction of being saved by God's grace through faith means. There's no human effort in this. So we need to live better. Grace. Grace excludes us from all that spiritual pride and foolishness, all that self-righteousness, because the gospel teaches us, if nothing else, that we don't deserve to be here. But man, isn't God so good? And if that's our mantra, if that's what we're saying to each other and of each other regularly, then if you say, dude, I have been crazy struggling with this sin, then do I go, oh man, you need to fix yourself, fool, right? Of course not. Because, like, that, that's us. We struggle with sin. And we could talk about that. We could pray for each other about it. We could hurt over that. You know? I'm concerned about that. Well, let me be concerned with you. Like there's an expression and an outward flowing of what is to be, right? Like the image bearing, walking in love as God has loved us, kind of thing that comes out of recognizing a salvation that comes by grace through faith alone. Apart from any doing. Apart from any working, God's gift means I don't boast. And that means that I don't need to be seen as something great. I just get to do what the Lord grants me work to do. And that's exactly where we lead in point three. We're saved to walk in good works. At this point, I, I trust and I hope that nothing I've said is controversial. Right? If you're a Christian in this room... Hopefully, verse 8 and 9, the whole time you're saying amen and amen, right? Maybe there's some things I need to think about more carefully, but amen and amen. It is verse 10 that could send us in all kinds of wacky ways. Let me read you verse 10 in talking about how we are saved to walk in good works. Because that, for many, sounds exactly the opposite of what we had just said. Paul had just said, right, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one could boast. And yet, verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Like what, what is it, Paul? Is it works? Is it not works? What is happening? I like what Martin Luther once said, Salvation is granted through faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. And what he means by that is it's not just faith, it's not just a trust, but that trust bleeds into how we live. God's salvation of us, if we think about the context of the the beginning part of Ephesians 2, his salvation of us, he has rescued us. He pulled us out of being dead in our trespasses and sins. He pulled us out of being enslaved to our passions and our lusts. Right? He rescued us from the prince of darkness and our obedience, our disobedience to the father because of our obedience and influence by, by Satan. Right? All of that stuff, he has rescued us from that and we had no part in that. But now that we are his child, there's an emphasis on the fact that we are his workmanship. We are his workmanship. The, the term that is used, that is translated workmanship is poema. And it's the word that we get our English term poem from, right? Poema, poem. So I don't know why I don't know why I got angry at, at you <laughs> not knowing that that comes from poem. That was kind of weird. That was a weird moment, right? But the, the term poem. Right comes from poema, but it tells you something of the direction of this term. It's a word that means workmanship or creation, right? Something that you have done creatively, but particularly that would be delightful in the creator, the crafter's mind. It's something that's artfully made. Something that's rich and valuable in the creator, Right? In his thinking of it. It is his careful work, if we might say. Right? Because if nothing else, the idea of why this word would become our English word for poem is because that is a work of thinking, of feeling, of enjoying, of artistic expression in the use of words. Right? If you're a poet, that's phenomenal. That means that you're crafting words in such a way that it evokes an emotional response, right? As as human beings who are granted logos, word thinking, mind, etc. We appreciate that as image bearers. We, Christians, the redeemed in Christ, that's what Paul means by we, we are his poema, his art, his workmanship, his careful design. We, we, we are, you know, we, we talk about like craftsmen and their workmanship, you know? Like, hey, look at this table. Yeah, look at, look at this workmanship, Right, and I, I'm like I'm I'm like the dull you know the dull tool in the shed. I'm like oh uh, yeah, it's smooth. Like <laughs> like what am I supposed to say about this? Right, like but we appreciate workmanship, carefulness, right? And we are as believers God's workmanship. It is He has designed us carefully, artfully, lovingly, and intentionally. It, everything that has happened in the course of your life before Christ, God has ordained that for you. The, the blessings, the good relationships, the pains, the suffering. And I'm not, I'm not saying that there's a delightful things, not, not at all. But you are in Christ as a believer, now his workmanship. He, he has intentionally brought you from that place to this place. So that 2 Corinthians 5, 17 is absolutely true. If, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, right? We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. If he is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away and behold, the new has come. There is an already, right? We are already new. There's a not yet. We have more to be renewed in one day in the future. But the idea is that we are created or recreated as workmanship, as God's work of art in Christ Jesus for good works. We are created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works. Now, not as a means, right, of of earning something with the Lord, but we are created to do something to honor him. Titus 2.14 speaks of Christ and says, Christ, who gave himself for, up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself, now listen to this, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Right? In other words, we are a people that have been redeemed with a purpose, to do good works. So the first thing we got ask ourselves, okay, what, what are we talking about? Right? What is a good work? Well, whatever the term good works mean, it can't mean something that can be performed in the exact same way or for the same purposes or with the same motive as someone that's not a Christian. In other words, it's not just good deeds. Good deeds are important. I think there they are significant, and I hope that the world, all the world, Christians and non-Christians alike, care about good deeds. You know, make orphanages, feed the poor, right? Um, I don't know, remove graffiti or... Or offer free tutoring. I mean, those are good things. Those are good deeds. And I'm not saying Christians shouldn't do that or that Christians are removed from that. Not at all. But if it is simply that, then how is it different in Christ than not in Christ? Because, right, this, the, the phrase says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That there is something as a new creation, as a new being, right? redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, that we are brand new and purposed for good works. So it cannot be, and it certainly isn't, if you go back to verse 9, right? Our salvation is not a result of works so that no one can boast. You, You can't be doing this stuff and saying that this brings any kind of glory or significance to you. Whatever else good works means, it must mean that these are motivated And come flowing out of love for God and love for people. You call that Jesus, you know, saying that this is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, might, and soul. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Anything done from a love relationship with God, right? And then we go back to building orphanages, feeding the poor, removing graffiti, or offering free tutoring. You can do that, motivated out of a love relationship for Jesus Christ. And that is a good work. It, otherwise, it's, it's, it's a good thing, right? It's a good deed. I'd rather have people doing that than not doing that. But it is not unto the Lord as a new creation, as a Christian, as a child of God, as a son or daughter, as an heir of the divine grace of God granted to us for all of eternity. It's it's not enough just to do a thing. It must be done to His glory, for His purposes, because we love Him. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this, good works, let me say it in my kind of British accent, good works, are only such as God hath commanded in His holy word, and not such as, without the warrant thereof, are devised by men out of blind zeal or upon any pretense of good intention. Uh, The accent might have thrown you a little bit, but the wording is a little bit off for us too, right? The whole point, they, they say it's not devised by men out of just a general zeal for some general goodness or upon even a pretense of good intention. Your good motive in trying to do something is not sufficient. Why? Because it does not direct itself back to Jesus Christ, or to God. If you buy the theory that God is the most significant thing in all of reality, and he has created an entire universe that he can hold in his hand, and he's created every human being that has ever lived, and they are made in his image, and they are by nature a disappointment to him constantly, right, deserving of his wrath, and he has saved some, anything that is done, even of benevolence and kindness, which, which I extol. I want the world to do. I want unbelievers to do kind deeds. That is an excellent thing. But they do not reference the one God who holds the universe in his hands and every created being in every soul and their eternal destiny in his hands. And he has a right to do so because he is not us. He's not a bigger, stronger version of us. He is the infinite. We are the finite. We are passing and we are dust. And he is everything. Then what we do for His glory, because we love Him, that is the only thing that can be defined as a work that is good. It's not something that can be defined by individuals, by nations, by cultural movements, by political aspirations. It can only be defined as that which we do because we love God. And that's why it makes sense that these good works flow out of and after the fact that we are now recreated as his workmanship in Christ Jesus. Afterwards, when we have a right reference for saying this is, this is how good God is. This is how good his grace is. All that stuff we, we saw that, that we just read in verses 8 and 9. After we read all that, then this is us now in Christ. And in Christ then, what is left for us but an overflowing cup of love and goodness. And thinking that, man, I don't deserve any of this. How good is our God? So what do we do with that? We do things that are motivated by love and thankfulness to him. That's a good work. That's what we do. And then when I was talking about the particulars of your life. Well, I think that's the point. That however God has rescued and whatever he has rescued you from is meant to influence the particular ways that you could do good. You might have some skills that you learn, like music, and you desire to do that unto his good. Maybe you are a poet. And so you start to write poems that are good. You know John Donne? Excellent English poet, right? Before Christ, very sensual, romantic stuff. After Christ, God-honoring and excellent. It's how we are transformed in our particulars so that so we might honor the God who has rescued us from our sin. And so we are his workmanship in Christ, in Christ, created for good works. And we are created to walk in those good works. The second part of verse 10 says something interesting, which God prepared beforehand, talking about the good works. Good works are something that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, that we should walk in them. You guys know the idea of walk in the New Testament or throughout the scriptures. It's how you get from point A to point B, but the how is emphasized in the idea of walk. How do you walk? Like, how, how do you get from the beginning of life to the end of life? What is your lifestyle, right? Right? Because the idea here is that we might walk in the good works that God has prepared beforehand. See, we're not given a list of this is a good work, this is a good work, this is a good work. What we're given is the idea that God desires for us to live in such a way that honors him in the new life. And as he does, this is the walk that is presented before him. And God has prepared all of it. God preparing this, this, all the good works that we are to walk in means that it's not just morality or principles that are just kind of thrown out there. But if there's areas of struggle, well, that is something that God has prepared for you to walk in them, to find good works in them, to overcome. If there's areas of need that are particular to your soul, to your heart, your heart hurts for certain things that are unjust in this world well, perhaps God has prepared you to walk in such a way to do good works in those things. Just as sin and its effects were particular to each one of us, we struggle with certain sins. Certain sins had a grip on us, that, that on me, that may not be the same as you. Well, in that same way, then, then our desires, our purposes, our good works that God has prepared for us individually means that we will fight, struggle, and work to God's delight in ways that are different. Each one of us separately, because every single one of us individually are his workmanship designed and impurposed for good works. Let me give you this Philippians 2 12 through 13. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, it says, this, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For God, for it is God who works in you, both to will. And to work for his good pleasure. Now, you catch that last phrase that how does God work in you now as a Christian? Well, both to will in your willingness, in your desires, and to work for his good pleasure. It is both our will and the deeds that are combined in the new life in Christ. We are saved so that we might walk in goodness. And we should never confuse that with we are earning some kind of uh, better standing before the Lord. You have no better standing. You are literally his son or daughter. Right? What we do, we do out of thankfulness, out of love, because it's a good thing to do. If you haven't wished your father a happy Father's Day, you should. Right? Not because I told you to do it or because now that you do it, then he's going to give you 50 bucks. But because he's given you more than 50 bucks all his life and he's broke now. That part is true, but probably not need to be part of the sermon, right? But because out of a love relationship, you are acknowledging something that God has been gracious and good to you in. Pursue good works because that honors the Lord, right? Because that's like consistent with what he is meant to be. If we are his workmanship, his work of art, then it's, it's like being an instrument. Right, we are redeemed to play His song, to glorify God in the particular ways that that particular instrument can do. Is it a horn? Right. Is it strings? Right. Right. I don't. I'm, I don't know. Is it a thing you? You know. Sometimes guys just like be hitting this this square box. I'm like, that sounds good. I guess that's all right. We bring in trash cans next. Yeah. I don't know. What, I don't know what's next. You know, buckets on our heads. Right. Like. A, that's, if it sounds good, I guess it's a, whatever it is. Whatever particular instrument that we have been recreated to be, we play his song. We glorify God in the particular ways he has designed us to sound. We offer a beautiful song into the Savior's ears because of who we were and who we are now. We don't follow the course of the world anymore. We don't follow the prince of uh, the power of the air. We don't follow and in, in being enslaved to the passions of our flesh. We walk as representatives of God's household. We live as sons and daughters, imitating his firstborn, right, in our attitudes, in our actions. And all of that is to say that we transition from, this is what I'm supposed to do, but I can't do it because by nature I'm a child of wrath, to this is what I want to do, and I can do it because I'm in Christ. You see the huge difference? We, we, don't, we don't work to earn We work to love. We love it. We do it. Because this is what God has given us to do. We are motivated by love. Last verse. And then we'll close this out. Colossians 1, 9-10. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of our God. We are saved by grace through faith. We're saved apart from any human effort and we're saved to walk in good works because that's what his kids do. Let's close our time of prayer. Heavenly Father, we we lift up a final prayer as we think about your goodness to us in the salvation we find in Jesus Christ. And we ask, Lord, that you would be gracious to us, to each one that is in hearing of this message and of listening to the word of God explained. And we ask, Lord, that you be kind. I suspect there are some among us, Lord, who are still waiting and they're not sure what they're waiting for. Lord, would you help them to recognize the brokenness, their need for a savior, their sin, and what it deserves. And would you draw them to yourself in kindness so that they might not just repent of their sins, but find a life a life that is intentional and designed by you to do good, to honor you, to glorify the Son, to have purpose and meaning that begins in this life and that extends out for all of eternity. Lord, help us embrace the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to share that glory with others, and to encourage people to think more deeply about your infinite grace and love for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.